This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. We continue to study the letter of James. If you're here with us this morning and don't have a copy of the Scriptures, if you'll raise your hands and leave them up, our ushers will be glad to give you a copy of the Bible, and you can keep that. That's a gift from us to take home with you, and you'll be able to follow along as I read this morning from James chapter 4, and we're going to look at, we're going to read this morning the first 12 verses. And actually look at this text this Sunday and next Sunday. So follow along now as, as we read God's holy, inspired, inerrant Word. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Wow. What wisdom we just heard. Main point today, and I believe next week, is God wants to change your life. God wants to change your life by giving you His wisdom, by giving you His grace. God wants to change your life. So the question is, do you want to change? Now let me just say, I'm going to talk about what changes you, but I've been thinking all week about what changes me. We're in this together. What changes you? Do you want to change? Recently after a meeting, a person said to me, with tears in his eyes, passionately, I want my life to change. I want my life to change. My response to him, we were, we were still in the auditorium here, there's still hundreds of people talking, enjoying fellowship, enjoying their relationships, and I looked around and I just said, you know, Everyone in this auditorium should feel the same way that you do. Everyone in this auditorium should feel that way and should make the same statement that you just made to me. The good news for you is that you recognize this and you're making this statement. We should all be able to say and mean it, I want my life to change. We should say it with tears in our eyes. We all can grow. We all need to grow. Some of us feel it more than others. But nobody here has no need to grow. Has no need for change. And if we do change, it's going to bless us personally. And it's going to bless the people we love the most and the people that we seek to serve. It's also one of the main ways that we bring glory to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that His grace changes us. So if we do come to that point, I want my life to change, the next question is, can we? And what changes us? The good news is the Gospel is all about powerful change. It's about newness of life through what John Calvin called the stupendous power of the Spirit. It's the power of Christ that He manifested when He was raised from the dead. It's the blueprint for new life in us. It's an example of the kind of power that belongs to us because we're united to Christ by faith.
faith. God is at work in you if you're a Christian because of Christ this morning, and He is powerfully, stupendous power bringing new life to you. It's not necessarily easy. But it does mean we can change. We tend to think that the easier spiritual exercises are more helpful and the harder ones less so. And it's true that the, the benefit of harder things, like reading a hard book or being sharpened by a friend, may not be as immediate as like singing this morning in the meeting or seeing a sunset in God's creation and how that brings kind of an immediate joy to our lives. Or enjoying our relationships after the meeting today. But the benefit may be greater with harder things like studying the letter of James deeply and listening carefully to this wisdom. John Piper said, In his book, When I Don't Desire God, I have the profound sense that many people who complain of not being able to rejoice in God treat the knowledge of God as something that ought to be easy to get. And they're passive as a result. They expect spiritual things to happen to them out of nowhere. They don't grasp the pattern of the Bible for how to experience the knowledge of God. And then he turned to Old Testament wisdom and read these verses from Proverbs 2. My son, if you, listen, receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it, like silver, and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. God has chosen to bless seeking with finding. I don't think these verses are easy. But we're going to seek the Lord. God gives wisdom to those who are aggressive. They're diggers. And when we do these things, then we discover the gold, the diamonds, the knowing Christ. It's still grace, but it's a gift. And with this in mind, for the next two Sundays, we're going to dig into these verses. Our goal is diamonds. Spiritual gold. So let's look today. What changes you? From James chapter 4, part 1. What changes you? And again, what changes me? What changes you? Three points I think James makes crystal clear. Your desires, your humility, and God's grace. First of all, your desires. If you change your desires, you will change your life. 
Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He is writing, remember, his original readers, his original audience, are churches. And these churches are experiencing serious relational conflict. This is conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ. We just studied, Zach shared with us from chapter 3, that true wisdom produces peace. It's on, it's on display. Wisdom, true wisdom is on display in the context of the church, the community of God's redeemed people. True wisdom is on display because there's peace. But here, people in the church are involved in power struggles. They're involved in backbiting. They're jostling for position. All these things we would expect in the world. But these problems are in the church, and this is not right. It's not right. And James is a wise, remember, discerning, caring pastor who knows this is not right. This this is not the fruit of true wisdom. This is not the fruit of genuine Faith, and he's all about genuine faith. Something is badly wrong when the church is like the world. The, the, the word for church means called out of. The world. Different than the world by definition. So, so why is it like this? Why are there these problems? Why are they angry? Why am I angry? Why are you angry? Why are you unhappy? Why are you involved in conflict? Here's wisdom for us all, isn't it? The reason is clear. I mean, he is crystal clear. Verse 1, the reason is your passions. The Greek is where we get the word hedonism. It's about Pleasure. Sometimes that word can be used positively. You know, you've heard of Christian hedonism. It's hard to get there. You have to work at it. Hedonism normally means a self-seeking of pleasure. I want what I want. It's a philosophy of life that says whatever pleases you is right and good and valuable. It says, don't be hindered or concerned about anything else. Just please yourself. That's hedonism. And that's where we get that from this word. This Greek word that James uses here in verse 1. He's talking about desires that have run amok. Desires, unrestrained desires for something good maybe, but for selfish reasons, benefits, pleasures. Or desires for something that's just wrong, period. He's talking about a worldly experience of the heart. Self-centered desires. And the result 
in relationships is a disaster. He contradicts, doesn't he, what we normally think about our conflicts. We're thinking when we have a conflict or we get angry, don't we normally say, He made me angry. Or she made me angry. We think we're minding our own business and someone came along and made us angry. We were fine, doing just great. No anger problem. And then you came. That's how we think. We weren't angry before. Now we murder. And it's your fault. And it's in church. And it's... It's because of someone else, but this is not true wisdom. It's an expression of a lack of discernment. You are missing it. What causes conflict? Here, from the Word of God. This is so helpful. This is what causes your conflicts. Verse 1, it's your passions, your selfish Sinful desires are at war within you. Verse 2, you, you desire something and you don't get what you want. So you fight and quarrel and murder. Verse 3, you covet something. This is an even stronger word. It's been used in James before. In chapter 3, about bitter Jealousy, it's a coveting something. And I can't obtain it. And so I murder somebody. And then he even goes into, why don't you get what you want? Well, verse 3, you don't pray. This letter is filled with promises that God answers prayer. We should be highly motivated to pray as a result of studying this letter. He's just assuming God answers prayer. God's alive. He loves His people. When they ask for things, He gives it to them. Why aren't you getting what you want? Well, you don't pray. You lack prayer. Also, he says, some of you are praying, but you're asking for the wrong things or... You're asking for good things that you demand, you covet. What this reveals, there's a problem in our prayer life. It reveals you got a problem in your relationship with God. That's what's fundamental here. Not praying is an indication. I'm not relating well to the Lord. So if you're experiencing conflict in your relationships, coworkers, Roommates, kids, spouses, pastor, church. You're the one that needs to change, says James. Hold your applause, please. Thank you so much. What causes, verse 2, fights, quarrels. You desire and don't have, so you murder. It's extremely strong language. 
In fact, some commentators, because of the language, they take it literally, and they think there was actually murders in the church. You think we've got problems. I'd just like to pause for a moment and thank God nobody's ever killed anybody along the way. That's good. They think maybe some religious zealots were in the church and they just killed somebody. Most people think, though, that's probably not the meaning here. It's just James is using extreme language. It's a literary technique to get our attention and say to us, this this is bad. This is what happens when you let your desires go. You squander your prayers. You squander your prayers. Because you're praying for these lusts. These idols. You've heard it said, prayer changes you. But your prayers are affected by your desires. What changes you? Prayer does change you by all means. But prayer is hindered by desire. Evil, selfish desires lead to prayers being squandered. God answers prayers. But when you pray for wrong things, or you pray for things that you're demanding, it's your right to have this, then it reveals unbelief, okay? So James promises answered prayer in chapter 1, but he says, ask in faith with no doubting. This reveals unbelief, reveals doubting. Their, their prayers are not the expression of genuine faith. And they're squandering their prayer life. Their prayers reflect a love for this world. Their prayer reflects the very sinful passions that are causing the fights and quarrels. There's a little book in the bookstore I highly recommend. It's called A Small Book About a Big Problem, Meditations on Anger, Patience, and Peace. It's by licensed psychologist Dr. Ed Welch. He is a great psychologist. I wish I could meet with him this week. He is a great biblical counselor. He is a wonderful theologian. He's a good pastor. Here's what he says. Anger comes from within. And the stuff is rancid. These passions that are at war are your selfish desires that serve you and no one else, not even God. When you are angry, it is because you are angry. This is the hardest thing to learn about anger. You are the problem. Now listen, I can say I am the problem. I am reading through this book. It's 50 meditations because my wife brought it to me and said, you need to read this book. (laughs) She was reading it. And she wanted us to have fellowship, I assume, right? Yeah. (laughs) I needed to read the book. 
When we are angry at other people, we should ask, what, what is it I want? What is it? Why do I want this so bad? Why am I demanding this? What we tend to do is overstate the wrongs of others. And we make ourselves look very good. It's not me, it's you. It's exactly the opposite of true wisdom. That's why James says in verse 12, there's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, and it ain't you. Don't judge your neighbor. Now let's apply this. I've been trying to think of these verses. They're so important. And I want to, I've tried to think about, okay, who could this help the most? And I thought about parents. If, if you're seeking... I know none of your kids have ever been angry before. But if you're seeking to shepherd your child's heart, the wisdom that James is imparting, oh, <laughs> this is a gold mine. This is a gold mine for you. This is family changing wisdom. Shepherd their hearts. What's causing that fight? Hey, little man, this can be hard to accept. It's you! <laughs> One of our former pastors, who is now at our church that, that we planned a few years ago in Nashville, Redeeming Grace, Howard Varnado, he celebrated a milestone birthday. I won't tell you how old he is recently, and his daughter asked me to write a letter to encourage him, which was very, very easy to do. I wrote it in like three minutes. It just poured out of me. I hate church planning, by the way. All my friends leave. How'd you like to work with Zach every day? <laughs> I have to do something like that just so I can regain my composure. So, <laughs> Whew. I feel better now. <sighs> I'm back. <laughs> my youngest son interned in Nashville, and, and the Varnados, as you would expect, opened their doors up and allowed him to stay with them for the summer. And he experienced their hospitality, but he experienced their family. When he came back, he was very affected. He was very encouraged. He was inspired by their family. And he said to me, Dad, the Varnados are better people than we are. In fact, he repeated it just the other day. Oh, by the way, Dad, just a reminder, the Varnados are better people than we are. That's high-level encouragement in our house. <laughs> well, what I remembered, and as I wrote this letter, was just the investment that Howard and Dawn made in their family. He was a wise dad. And he was a dad who had this wisdom and 
worked with his kids so that what you see now, what I observe, and his oldest son led worship for us a couple weeks ago, if it wasn't last week, and is serving as a VFC intern this fall, is they, they captured their parents' desire for God. They, their desires are being shepherded. And this is wise. And this chapter is a gift to every parent in here. James 4 is wisdom for parenting. In the Beatitudes, Jesus equates anger with murder. Anger destroys, and Jesus wants life for you. He wants life for other people. He doesn't want people to be killed in the church. And we can't have this new life in Christ until we see the murderer within. Welch says, try this identity today. Murderer! He, he writes this, Anger comes from our thwarted desires. Those desires can, in fact, be just fine. We all have desires, hundreds of them. They range from the desire for a good relationship to a desire to lose 10 pounds. James isn't against all desires. Instead, he's teaching us to recognize when our desires get too big. It's one thing to desire love. It's something very different to need it. To say you have a right to it or to demand it. And when this happens, desires become selfish desires. Something we think we deserve. And don't get between me and what I deserve. Quarrels and fights are sure to follow. So, what changes you? Desires. Number two, your humility. Anger doesn't seem to have anything to do with God, but it does. We can be blind to this, but our anger contains a message about God. When our desires become so important that we murder, it says something about our relationship with God. That's why our prayer life is affected. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, strong words. This is a warning about worldliness worldliness the world is what characterizes a culture that's what james is talking about it's the spirit of a culture it's the values of a society it's the beliefs it's their goals it's what they esteem this is what he means by the world think of it as the anti-church it's the world is separated from God. It isn't grateful to God, the Creator. It is fueled by pride and self-focus. That's the world. And James is warning his original readers, and we are being warned as a result as we study this letter against worldliness. It's intense language. He is firing a broadside 
against worldliness. His aim is that those who are fracturing the community of the church that God loves, that He bought with His own blood, there's relationships and community, and there are people who are fracturing these relationships. There's quarrels and there are fights, and He's firing a broadside like a good pastor. They are Satan's allies. They are God's enemies. That's what it means to be worldly. The spirit of the world is life lived in opposition to God. These are people that are made in God's image, but they disregard God. They disregard His will. His kingdom. It's a problem when God's people get cozy with the world. There's something wrong with our relationship with God when we like the world, when we're friends with the world. Therefore, verse 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To pursue a friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God. One of my favorite Western heroes confronting a man says to him, we, we men are wretched things. He's the, the, the person he's talking to says, says who? He says Achilles. About 3,000 years ago, you read the Iliad, the guy he's talking to says, I'm familiar with the classic. My hero says, I think it's a poem about a man's destructive rage. Achilles was a warrior. He had a partner, a fellow warrior, a friend. There is no greater enemy than the mortal enemy of a friend. The man he's talking to. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. So Achilles confronted his friend's great enemy and Achilles gave the man one warning. There is no weapon, no army that could protect this enemy from the sheer, I'll say, destructive power that is Achilles' rage. What happened to the enemy? Achilles ran his sword through several parts of the man's body and dragged him around town. So could this enemy have done anything otherwise? He could have got out of town while he still had the chance. It was a warning. My point is, God's friends are that kind of enemy towards the world. The world is the mortal enemy of God. And God's people are enemies of the world. God's friends fight God's enemies. The spirit of the culture. Doesn't mean we're not evangelistic. We become all things to all men that we might win some. That's what we'll talk about at a Cornerstone U class. But the spirit, the values, the anti-God spirit of a culture is our enemy. You're an adulterer if you become a friend. He calls it adultery because the church is the bride of Christ. 
I read the other day that when one of my favorite authors, John Piper, was 15 years old, his mother gave him a Bible, which he still has. And she wrote in it, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Now, it's, it's really difficult to overstate the blessing that John Piper has been to the church in, in this century and the last. It's been a tremendous blessing. We have many of his books in our bookstore. And I think Mrs. Piper was wise. <laughs> I think she was probably the greatest means of grace from what I've read in his life growing up. His dad was a traveling evangelist, and he just wasn't there as much. I think she was wise. I think she was God's friend. I think she shepherded her son's heart. And I thank God for her. All that to say, 2018 is widely considered to be the year of the woman. Much is being said. Much is being written. Calling women. Calling them out and casting a vision for womanhood. Some of it is good. Nothing I've read has said anything about having the mind of Christ. Nothing I've read has been encouraging women to be a follower of Christ. I don't think the idea is this is the year of biblical womanhood. I don't think anybody's going to be talking about Mrs. Piper. James chapter 4 is perfect for every woman in this room. So that in the year when... When our culture is having the year of the woman, you can be discerning. This is imparting wisdom to you. You'll be able to discern, oh, that is good. Oh, that's the spirit of this age. Finally, what changes us is grace. And that grace comes from humility. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. And He will exalt you by giving you His grace. What changes you ultimately is the grace of God. Verse 6, he says, God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. This is the only verse in the book of James that uses the word grace. Do you remember Luther wanted to take James out of the Bible because it didn't have enough grace? didn't have the gospel? Luther missed it, I think. Two times in verse 6, he gives more grace. Remember he, he said in chapter 2, mercy triumphs over justice. James is all about grace. 
He doesn't want to just warn us. He wants us to humble ourselves. He wants us to recognize our desires. He wants to impart wisdom. But grace is greater with James. The grace of God is superior to the warnings in James. That's why he promises, verse 8, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Submit to God. Resist the devil and He will flee from you. You ever feel like you're not near to God? Here's a, here's a promise. And it's, it's a promise in the midst of strong warnings. He gives more grace. There are so many promises in this text. You draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. You resist the devil, He will flee from you. He gives more grace. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We can expect to pray this morning and receive because of grace. And that grace will change us. Grace is God at work in our lives. Grace is God's riches. It's all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. That's grace. He gives more grace. He's opposed to the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. This morning we're going to have an opportunity at the end of the meeting we're going to invite you down to be prayed for. It's an expression of humility. When I pray for people as they come down, I, said this, I almost always say, it's humble of you to come up here and be prayed for. And you can expect grace. And what that grace is going to do, it's going to change your desires. You, as we humble ourselves, and we submit to God, and we draw near to Him, and He gives us grace, it changes our desires. What changes you? Your desires. And your desires change so that what you want ultimately and wisely is God. David said, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's why it's really wise to desire God. It is smart to be a Christian hedonist. It's just more joy. David said in Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. That's the offer from God. Draw near to God this morning, and He will draw near to you, and you will have more joy than anyone in the world. That's the promise. And it's by His grace through Christ. Father, I pray this morning for this congregation. They're fighting for joy in Christ, Lord. 
I pray this morning would be a means of grace for them. I pray you draw your children close to you this morning. Forgive us, Lord, and change us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.